Thorn in Your Side is a podcast recorded on the various lands of First Nations peoples, land that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. While there's air that is breathed and water that nourishes and provides, ownership of this land remains unresolved. Respects are paid to elders past and present in the ongoing quest for self-determination and reclamation of land. Hello, and it's Dawn in Your Side, and my name is M, and today I've got M Prime, who elsewise in the real world goes by Michael, recorded on location at my house for the first ever historical time, and the reason why is because we're backing up from an odd job that Michael has done here today, and we had to do very good timing, because the start of the day, it was pissing down, and then it seized up a bit, and that was enough time for Michael to do his odd job. And then it just started fucking up with the rain again, including some extra hail. So good job, Michael. It yeah. felt like you did a very fly-by-night ninja effort to get it done. <laughs> I didn't realise I was racing against the clock. It yeah. turned out we had like 15, 20 minutes spare and then hail. But I, I do appreciate <laughs> you doing that, though, because right. it, was a, it was very difficult for me to do clothesline drying. Not the most exciting listening for listeners, but it does make my world. Good. Any reflections? <laughs> Any reflections on your clothesline job there, Michael? Uh, I've, I, it's a it's a nice design, very modular. Um, yeah. I had I, I, I was I was like oh I could I could do this in a big spiral if I wanted to, but then I realised if you got if you have to maintain that if you, if something goes wrong it's a real pain in the ass to take it apart. Oh, you didn't spiral it. You cut up the cords. Yeah, well, you meant to do it in like squares rather than oh. I was like oh you could spiral it but no so you segmented it. it oh yeah yeah you got it that, that's what they say they, they you, you it's in the manual okay <laughs> the manual it's um, I looked at the manual I was like oh it's a hills hoist and there was this weird sort of sort of little bit of national pride that I'm only slightly ashamed of having <laughs> yeah well it's good that you it sounds like you know your clotheslines because <laughs> I was holding out for like a spiral but you've oh. done the segmentation there you go well that's, very good yeah i don't really know my clotheslines but i just know that that's the hills hoist which is an australian invention anyway listeners if you are looking for um, a good man who can do some odd jobs around the house uh, i can give you good testimonial that michael is your man but we'll see what happens when you actually hang something on it yeah that's the next step once it stops hailing <laughs> yeah. i don't know it feels like i did my first advertisement yeah it's not even capitalist because i suppose I, I technically own the means of my own production it's a solo person yeah, okay. Well, so a non-capitalist advertisement, we, we will yeah. allow that. So we can maybe talk about what really brings us here, although I am happy to marvel over a job well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what else do you want to do, Michael? Because I, I feel like you've earned it today. Well, I mean, honestly, my head's all full of the topic we were going to discuss, so... And what topic would that be, Michael? Uh, well, essentially, basically, what it's like to come into the left from an online perspective. Like, I, I'm, I'm one of these uh, weird people who are po- popping up at the moment, probably in the last couple of years, who have been radicalised online. Well, yeah. so it's not so unique at the moment because I think everyone's experience at the moment is online, well, although yeah. depending upon your ability to, to access the internet or not. So, to me, it's created a, a new political conundrum. But anyway, Michael, you've been able to, to ride the crest of that by the sound of things. I'm, a, I'm what you might call a very online person, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, it's hard to know where to start, actually. But um. I might also just say as well that to all the listeners, if you're hearing some ambient noise in the background, it's shit storm rain. But I think we're going to plough on. 
So as we mentioned in in your last episode, Michael, we talked a little bit about your initial political experiences where uh, you're kind of feeling like you're still jumping in. Mm. Uh, if, uh, if I might hazard to ask at this point, uh, has there been anything in your life, anything personally that's been going on that's, that's kind of prompted this political entry? Um, I wouldn't say exactly anything personal. I think... I can't remember if this was actually included in the last episode or if uh, it was cut out, to be honest. But I do remember talking about how it was a lot to do with uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and, and, you know, seeing a lot of people online saying things like Bernie would have won, for instance. Yeah, no, I think that made the cut. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, honestly, you know, having lived a lot of my life renting, (laughs) that always felt really unpleasant. I mean, I could, I could go into my personal history about, like, why I have the values that I have. Uh, but, gee, yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's so many things to cover. If you want to actually hear that history, I can actually give it to you. <laughs> sure, why not? All right. Like um, I said, Michael, you've earned it with your labour today. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, well, so I suppose actually personally one of the things in my life that, that probably really made it quite difficult to slot into the capitalist system is I have some, um, some chronic illness stuff so i have sleep apnea and it's uh it it makes your energy levels fluctuate you never quite know if you're going to be fully on board for a good job or not even with therapy that that, that's getting better i'm getting better at managing that anyway like so i actually have two unfinished degrees one in civil engineering one in uh video game programming (gasps) yep um so i've got about i got about two-thirds of the way through those and uh, actually did quite well in a lot of subjects and then just like the the complete lack of energy that you get from this from a chronic illness just made me crash out So that, that sort of stopped me from being like a, a full-fledged member of the PMC, the, the professional managerial class. And, and like you, you mentioned that you're actually the first person in your family to have a degree. Yeah. Uh, I, might, I might be one of the first people in my family not to have a degree. Oh, <laughs> we've converged through this podcast project. Yeah. yeah. That's nice. That's very, very nice. But also, like, uh, I come from a family of, like, you know, engineers and lawyers and, and scientists and whatever and teachers. And, and academically, I'm very good. And I can walk into an exam or, like, a standardised test and just ace it or, like, um, I, I don't really want to go bragging about all my test results. But, it, it, you know, like, if, if I was the sort of person who actually believed that that valued you as a person, I might think I was the shit. Um, but, like, also, I actually have a brother who's mentally disabled and he's been that way since, since birth. Yeah. And so you get this very clear idea that okay all the things that you value a person by like whether they're intelligent whether they can achieve things whether they can present themselves well whether they can have a good conversation with you he had none of that stuff and so you, you very quickly realize oh well that doesn't actually value him as a person because he's still a person he still has value and I, I i learned that growing up and so it just kind of dispelled a lot of those myths that that you somehow have to earn your place in society as a human being that's definitely was a formative part of my values and uh, struggling with being part of the professional managerial class, I basically reached a point where I was like, this is like, is really frustrating not being able to actually earn money or advance in society or like get, get anywhere. And it just felt like it, a lot of people have that experience of just constantly being pushed down. Well, there's still that tension, isn't there, where um, you still feel a sense of identity and enablement, depending upon how well you can still contribute economically. Yeah, and, and that, that's a very hard thing to deprogram from. But yeah, like uh, I had a bit of deprogramming from that. So, so what does that deprogramming look like? Okay, so you're, you're talking about my, my online experience or? Uh... Um, not necessarily. I think we were going along some line where, it, where you, you contribute to society, mm. but often that can be mystified by the idea of how one earns a buck yeah. and the stuff they accrue. So 
getting status through their material gain and how much they were able to climb up the the social hierarchy so that's that's a whole bunch of stuff that people tend to aspire to but you're suggesting that you've railed against that in in some way and it's required perhaps unpacking a few things would that be fair to say yeah yeah if i'd you know finished engineering and, and and gone through that i would have had a very comfortable life and it would have been much harder to sort of notice that there's some injustice going on even even from people who are in that class like i remember speaking to someone online recently who they're an it professional and they were basically saying well i earn a lot of money so i actually like inequality and i didn't know how to explain to them that well, actually, mate, if you don't have enough money that it makes you richer by itself, you're actually on the low side of inequality. <laughs> like, you might feel like you're doing okay, but you're actually still being screwed by the system. But, but yeah, it's hard to notice when you're earning, like, six figures that the things are going well. Like, the, the th- there is actually a, an imbalance in society. It's that atomization where if you feel like you're doing very well, then therefore everything is well. But to be able to take it one step further and, and have a look at how everything impacts collectively and socially and how that meshes together with, with one's economic participation. That's the other thing to perhaps either investigate or fall into, depending upon um, where one's journey is and, and where one's predicament is, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So what's your predicament, Michael? Predicament. Well, I'm renting, can't get into the property market, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's, that's a big one. Like, that was, that's always been really hard. Like, I think a lot of people feel that. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm giving away more than half my paycheck every week mm. to someone else just for the privilege of existing. And that seems like it's going to go on forever. <laughs> yeah. And, and, like, there are all sorts of things where you look at, like, for instance, you know, I'm a parent. I've got two young kids not together with their mother anymore. Like, we, we've sort of transitioned into co-parenting because we don't want to say that we've broken up because it's like we don't want to sort of buy into the idea that that's necessarily a failing it's just we're still a family we're still raising kids we're just not living together it's fine but that whole process again if it wasn't for capitalism if it wasn't for the problem of trying to get into a property market trying to live trying to you know having having to have enough money to have your own place that would have been so much easier but as it was the whole problem of like one of the things i think a lot of people do like when they if they like stay together for the kids for instance to me it doesn't feel like that's actually a a reasonable uh way to look at it I, i think mostly what you're doing is you're staying together for the financial security of the kids um because financial security is a problem that you actually have in this society like if you if you don't want to you want to make sure that you have enough money to raise kids and, and give them what they need and it's just made so much harder if you have to split the finances in two so that's another example of just like all these problems that you realize oh well this wouldn't be such a big deal we didn't have this financial pressure but well, to, to meet all these objectives that's that's basically what keeps the pulse racing in many ways isn't it yeah yeah like they've got to keep you rushing like just constantly putting out product to in order to make money as if productivity was actually the problem <laughs> when it's not uh, we, we have far more than we need as a society so i'm interested at that point michael that you've seen possibly the tensions that can happen at one point did you think well this is not ideal the catalyst, again, was very much... Because I did learn uh, some stuff like about Noam Chomsky in, in, when I was doing uh, my video game degree. Uh, some of the teachers, when, when the management was uh, changing over, they, they took a bit of a moment to actually teach us something useful. So, uh, sorry, wait, sorry. hang on. Uh, okay, sorry, sorry. Yeah, um, but where I'm getting a bit confused, Michael, is is that you're doing video gaming and that's how you're introduced to Noam Chomsky. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we, could, you please, <laughs> could you please walk us through that? Part, part of the degree is um, design... And um, so we, we learned how to, like, we did have a design course, which was how to use Photoshop and stuff like that and how to actually do, like, composition and things like that. Mm. And another course we had was basically semiotics, which was symbolism and how to, like, how to understand if you use a certain colour, that might mean something in a certain context. Just for example, you know, like, if you use pink or blue, 
that means traditionally that means girl or boy, stuff like that. And um, iconography and that sort of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and in that course, uh, which apparently was originally going to have a lot of corporate team building BS as part of it as well, the management of the college was kind of was was being changed over hands, and so no one was really watching. Ah. And so they took the chance to actually teach us just Noam Chomsky instead. <laughs> and um, it was, it was just, it was, a, that was a really memorable course actually. And just uh, like going through manufacturing consent and stuff like that. So, I mean, that, that sounds awesome. Yeah, but no, it was great. <laughs> how does that apply to your job? Or was it just the case of bosses going, nah, fuck this. Now's our chance. <laughs> yeah, basically. But also, also like part of it was we're not, we weren't just learning the technical side of video game programming. We we're also learning the design side of how to make a piece of art because it, it, that does intersect. Okay. Um, and uh, we, we shared that space with uh, game design students. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was basically what we were learning was like basically learning about communication essentially All right. was part of it was because when you make a video game or any, any, any digital interactive thing, yeah. you're, you're making a piece of communication. Okay. And now um, I can kind of see the entry point for stuff like Chomsky with manufacturing yeah. descent because that's all about trying to work out how one receives information mm. um, and then from there how one might like to unpack it or receive it yeah. and make sense of it. So yeah, there's a bit of deconstruction deconstruction work happening there, I suppose, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, um, and I, I'm sure I'm sure it was partly just the teachers taking a bit of a moment to to do their own cool thing. But uh, yeah, anyway, so that, that was one thing I learned. But I, so I had a bit of a systemic idea of like a systemic critique critique of the systems that run our lives, and then uh, again with Donald Trump and 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 seeing. I didn't understand like what the hell was going on. I was seeing some people saying like he's not actually the problem; he's a symptom of of a problem. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, following that rabbit hole and and, and hearing one person in particular uh, say that it was Cody Johnston, and he said on his podcast that he was an anti-capitalist. Uh, okay. And that was the first time that it occurred to me that that was an option. And then I started googling that stuff. And there's one particular channel uh, which I found, which is called Non Compete. Okay. Um, and he's an anarcho-communist yeah. uh, who lives in Vietnam. He moved there because uh, it was the closest, like, one of the more socialist places he could move to yeah. um, after he was radicalised. He was originally a capitalist. He actually ran businesses. And at some point he realised that it was it was all, that it was exploitative and horrible. And he, he actually sold his business to his workers mm. um, and then moved and, and now he lives there. And he actually describes his job as a propagandist. He's quite an interesting fellow. Um, but, um, yeah, he has he had a couple of playlists in particular. One was Why Capitalism Sucks, mm. and that was the one that finally taught me the labour theory of value, uh, which was, like, if someone makes... If you make a bicycle and you sell it for 50 bucks, you take the raw materials, which might cost you 10 bucks, you, you do a bunch of work, and you sell a bicycle for 50 bucks, you put 40 bucks of value into it with your work. Mm. Um, and then if you employ someone to do that for you so that you can increase your output... You might pay them ten dollars per bike. Yeah, they've added forty bucks to the bike, and so you're stealing thirty dollars of their value. Yeah, um, and th I finally realized, oh, like profit comes from people's work, which is not being given back to them. And here's where I'm going to stop you there, Michael, yep. because this might introduce a new conversation here. Mm. Now, I don't have too many listeners at the moment, but I suspect if I did, I reckon we'd get a few cruel listeners going. No, he's explained it wrong. Yeah, well, it's very simplified. <laughs> um, I would say that that's actually quite accessible, what you've explained there. You distilled it down to the, the basic parts where if someone does exchange their labour in terms of what they're capable of outputting or mm. providing, what the employer is going to get is that labour, but their side of the bargain is, is that they have to offer some payment in order to recompensate their labour, but... 
that's where the contradiction might potentially be because at that point the capitalist is thinking, well, how much can I pay and mm. how much more labour can I get in that exchange? So it's that mysterious exchange that happens at that point where I think it becomes very political, very contradictory, mm. and where I think people like you and I might think, well, we might be getting a bit ripped off in that deal. Yeah. That's the dilemma, I think, that confronts us in terms of how we organise because you will get your, your armchair types that will listen to this kind of conversation and go, we're just not doing it right <laughs> because, well, one example there is that where I was talking about how much do I exactly recompense for the labour that I've received here, mm. how much payment can I actually hold perhaps yeah. in order to extract as much wealth out of this relationship as I can. Yeah, so... And I know that you're chomping at the bit, Michael, because you really want oh. to say something. But I'm going to keep talking. At night. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, like, that, that, that what you said about how they're trying to say, like, how little can I pay this person? Like, yeah. that's where the capitalist logic come in, comes in is how much can I not pay this person? Mm. Uh, and they will pay you as little as they can possibly get away with. And that's where the, part of where the problem comes in. And, and also the, the logic of, well, they had the place where you put the bike together. So somehow that entitles them to the majority of the of the share of your work. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's the official line, isn't it? Mm. It's like, we own the way that we can make the bike. Yeah. You make the bike, but we own how you make it. Yeah. So therefore, it's our privilege to pay you. I mean, I mean, I've seen people talk about how Jeff Bezos is like, yeah, he came up with a system that worked. I'm like, what, shopping about on the internet? Yeah. Like, he's not the first person to think of that. He just happened to get lucky at the right time. Yeah, it, I, I don't agree that the tiny amount that he gave at the very beginning to get into the position where he was able to grow a monopoly... Well, he, he's mastered how to, to make a lot of the process invisible, mm. hasn't he? So Jeff Bezos, he's, he's the easy guy who owns Amazon, Yeah, right? He's, is he the richest guy in the world right yes, now? Yeah. He's, he crossed, crossed 2 billion, 200 billion, sorry, 200 okay. billion. During, the, the, during the, the pandemic, he crossed 200 billion. See, that amount doesn't mean much to me because <laughs> it's like, you know, that's a lot of coffee you can get for that amount of money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I saw it described as if you could save $50,000 a year, that'd be pretty good, right? Yeah. If you did that for 20,000 years, you'd have a, have a billion dollars. Like, yeah. <laughs> the guy has basically covered entire evolutionary epochs there with mm. his ability to save. Yeah, yeah. Um, and apparently <laughs> if he gave every one of his workers $105,000, he'd have the same amount of money left as he did at the start of the pandemic. Yeah. I, I think that the $105,000 per worker he could give out, his company, like the just ridiculous number of people that he's got, that's, yeah. that's an accessible number. Like we can see that that's maybe most it's, of the house. He could do that, but this is my point though, is that he, he's made the, the how he's been able to earn his quid and how he's been able to create his business production. Like all of that. I think this is his trick. He's been able to make that entirely an invisible process. Yeah. I mean, you could unpack it a little bit here and there through the conversations we're having right now. You could do your own research. I could do a lot of activism. But the way that he's done it is still a relatively new form of exploitation. Mm. Still adopting some of the old ideas, you know, like having the factory in terms of I'm talking about these big warehouses yeah. and you're seeing them popping up here and there, even in Western countries now where yeah. all the goods are to be held there. People are going to be around to pack all the goods uh, once as the orders are made online and then the goods get distributed. Mm. But where there is invisibility is where all that work is being undertaken, what people are getting paid for. What's the experience of a person working there? Is it a nine-to-five job? Is it just basically happening as the demand arrives? All this stuff is just mystified, and it even challenges the old concepts of labour. And for that 
to me, that rings alarm bells to me because does this mean that there's new forms of exploitation here? Mm. This is the stuff that we're all still figuring out. I think Mr. Bezos has been able to take advantage of that by being able to, to raise the money. Yeah. But he's probably giving himself a pat in the back where it's like, I'm the richest dude in the world and I've done something new here. I'm innovative. <laughs> no, you've basically just found a, a great new way to, to fleece everyone. My thoughts. Yeah, I basically agree. Anyway, I, I was just going to say that coming into those spaces online, that was that was my, my path. And another another playlist that non-compete particularly had was called How Would Anarchism Actually Work in Real Life? Which I found, you know, obviously going to be highly speculative because a lot of these things don't fully exist in the world. There are places where they do in, in small par- parts of the world. But um, yeah. that was, that was again, I was like, oh, so actually you could probably structure society in such a way that you didn't have these people on top running everything, being rulers. And uh, anyway, if you want to keep on hearing about the online radicalization part of it, I can keep going on about that. Maybe we can save that for a, a future episode, Michael, because okay. yep. there, there are other odd jobs you can do in the sure. house that sure. will give me the excuse for you to, to come here and we can do another podcast episode afterwards. Okay. But one thing I really want to explore further there is that idea of the, the, the debates and the schisms that can happen mm. within the leftist thoughts and organizing and discussions. I mean, we're probably not going to be able to, to cover it all today, but... <sighs> You were mentioning to me earlier on, Michael, before we did this episode and before you fixed up my clothesline, that there seems to be this even parody of conflicting leftist thought between anarchists and Marxist-Leninists, yeah. which can be encapsulated for me quite banalistically, pathetically. <laughs> did I just invent a word in there somewhere? Uh, banalistic. You're talking about banality there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you just... That shit posting culture, right? Yeah, 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 and absolutely. where people think, well, our, my best political expression right now can be through the best cutting meme I can produce. Mm. And that leads to the shit posting culture. But anyway, where I'm driving at is that there is a Facebook group called Tankies versus Tankies versus Ultras. Yeah. And I won't bother giving the link. I just recently left the group because it just fucking rotted my brain just for existing with it for five minutes. But yeah. this is the life for a certain segment of 20-somethings in Mm. Western nations who might consider themselves a little bit on the woke political side. But what happens there is is that it romanticises this idea that um, there's a Marxist-Leninist group and there's an anarchist group and there's different competing levels of thought to the point where let's create a bit of theatre here and the different competing ideas can be played out through whoever comes up with the most cutting meme. And that's pretty much a redundant exercise for me (laughs) because there is a world to change. We need to organise and yeah, I'll take my tried hat off because Michael wants to say something again. Sure. Okay. Well, I was actually going to say like, cause I, I uh, spent a lot of time on Reddit. Um, and what I was saying though, particularly was that there is, it, it appears when you first like, enter the, like this leftist milieu or whatever you want to call it, it feels like when you look around, it feels like there is a parody of, of these two competing ideas. But yeah, like, so particularly on Reddit, there's a couple of subreddits. There's an anarchy subreddit, there's a communism subreddit, and there's a socialism subreddit. And then there's anarchy 101, communism 101, and socialism 101. And when you look at those six, or those, you know, those three sort of things, you go, oh, okay, so there's three main ideas, right? And the anarchy one is very clearly, they're anarchist. The the communism ones, they're Marxist-Leninist, they're tankies. And the socialism one says, well, we're a broad tent, we're going to accept all leftist views uh, and so i went to those places to sort of like you could go there and basically ask questions of the in the 101 subreddits you can ask technical questions and, and get answers 
it can be a bit hit and miss. Sometimes sometimes answers are sourced, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just wild, and it's generally pretty good natured. Generally, like in, in on Reddit. Yeah, well, I, it, it really depends on where you go. Okay. Like if you go to like a Donald Trump supporting subreddit, it's it's cancer. Um, uh, if you, yeah. If you go to like, and, and if you go to one of the main subs or whatever, it can be very like just flame wary. But these places tend to be fairly heavily moderated. Okay. Um, and so like, for instance, in the Socialism 101 subreddit, if you go there and you, you, you start having a debate and someone starts going, well, here's why socialism doesn't work, they'll just get kicked because they're like no this is not a debate place this is a this is a learning space okay um, and so it's quite it's, useful it's good that there's handy moderation there the are yeah. pretty switched on and consistent yeah yeah um, and th- th- some some of the places are quite good one thing you discover though is if you go to the communism 101 subreddit the, the, the marxist leninist one mm. and you ask a question that might be like questioning the kind of the foundations of their beliefs you just get kicked yeah that's been a familiar experience for me yeah. i think that's yeah i got kicked off said shit posting facebook group mm. <laughs> when i started to question the doctrine yeah <laughs> yeah and that's where i might try to expand a bit further like it, it just sounds like this real um redundant exercise it, it's not exactly going to to make my day or be an objective of mine just to try to piss off a bunch of 20 something children <laughs> because they've got this political dialogue that they want to protect mm. or doctrine to protect i don't know yeah well i mean I, i've sort of I, I spent a little bit of time on, on the communism ones and looked around a bit and just sort of went oh this is they had this reputation for kicking people really quickly. And I was like, well, I'm, I, don't, I don't really feel like going in there. But I still stayed on the Socialism 101 subreddit. So how do you navigate this stuff? Is this just through just sussing out the different Reddit groups? And, well, this is the one that's that works. This is where I'm going to get more value. This is where I feel safer. So, yeah, oh. yeah. I mean, I, I did spend a lot of time on the Socialism 101 subreddit asking a few questions and occasionally offering, tr- trying to offer an answer. And someone would often come in and, and try to correct me and, we, you know, they'd be back and forth. But one of the interesting things about the Socialism 101 subreddit was when someone asks a broad question about like leftist theory, someone would come in and say, here is the answer for a socialist, and it would be a Marxist-Leninist doctrine. And they wouldn't say, this is Marxist-Leninism. This is, they would say, this is socialism. And often you'll get a reply to that saying, well, there's also the anarchist answer, by the way, just so you know. And the space is set up in such a way that if someone tries to tell them that they're wrong about that, that won't work out because people go, no, no that, that's, hang on. <laughs> like okay. they're, they're allowed to say that. They're allowed to say that anarchy is an answer. Yeah. Um, and so saw this pattern, particularly in the anarchy subreddits, you'll ask a question and you'll get an answer where someone has distilled their understanding into a comment. And might give you a bit of like a sourcer or something where you can go and read more. Whereas and to me, that's not truth. That is someone's opinion that is up for critique and analysis mm. or acceptance, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's that's the the anarchy kind of side of things. You would get this. Someone would say, "This is my understanding," and 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 it would be a summarization of their ideas. Whereas when you look at the Marxist-Leninist takes, they're always like, "Read this, read this, read this, read this," or "Here's a Google Doc, which is twenty pages long, yeah. which is just full of links." to who knows what and they're basically their answer is read theory and if you disagree with me after that then you've read the theory wrong and i I just so get the theory right yeah so just read the theory and then interpret it correctly and if you interpret it correctly then you must be one of the chosen vanguardist people (laughs) i don't really know that's that vibe and where do you go from there you've got the theory down pat that means that you've got to be a theory enforcer because if you get enough people that get the theory right, then that means that you've got a good party discipline happening there. Mm. And then if that keeps happening and there's more momentum, you could form a revolutionary party that could seize the state as we know it. But what's the alternative there? 
or have people thought that far? I hazard the feel that people have thought that far, and that's when my concerns become more, even more apparent than a bunch of punk 20-something kids <laughs> pretending to be political. Yeah, and I guess just like coming in from, like not knowing anything and being like, can someone please explain leftist theory to me? Mm. Um, I think if I didn't have a good eye for bullshit, it might have been very easy to go, oh, okay, there's an orthodoxy here. There's like there's a body of work and, and people who are very certain about a very specific set of ideas. I'll just agree with them. I'll along with And it. it seems like you've got a, an amount of life experience there already, Michael. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And also having having been through like um, – that where I where I learned to spot bullshit, <laughs> but um, again, that's that's a that's a decades long project, I suppose. For most people, well, that's life. Like, yeah. I mean, that's that's stuff that you pick up because you've actually experienced like the reasons why you might want to become political. Mm. I mean, that's the reasons why I've kind of found myself here is that there's stuff that didn't necessarily make sense. There was stuff that's been quite painful. The stuff I've had to kind of figure out the hard way. Mm. And through that, it's amounted to a good bullshit detector, I suppose. And I think what's been able to calibrate that even better has been the education pathways I've taken. Um, and even there, it's still there's still that navigation process of trying to work out, well, what's good out of that and what's bad out of that. Or even at a tertiary education level, there's still that keenness and need to maintain the bullshit detector where... Yeah. How much of this is still useful? How much of it's still the stuff that's being fed to you in order to be able to contribute and do all the right things? Yeah, do you feel like that, Michael? Do you feel that the, the stuff that you've kind of encountered in your own life gives value to all the, the politics stuff that, that you come across and, and try to, to digest? Well, I will tell you, actually, I came from a Christian background. I was, uh, there, there's a whole long story there. But essentially, one of the things that I came to as, as I was leaving that sort of mindset was particularly, I, I, had, a, I had a very a slight brush with libertarianism on the way out of the church. Um, like, wow. <laughs> a brush with it. Like, I, I listened to one Stefan Molyneux podcast and I, I was like, oh, there's some inconsistencies here. Oh, fuck you, dude. Um, like, you know, it's like. I feel like, I, I mean, I, we could have just been in this alternative universe where, where I'm having this podcast episode where I'm just basically sticking the boots into you. <laughs> and it's like, fuck this Michael guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this this religious libertarian idiot that, that's basically just made a quid by um by trying to work out how he can fly to mars and set up his business there <laughs> yeah well i mean but it was interesting like I, coming out of the church i, I realized one one of the things that I, I'd, I'd lived my life in this way of like believing that there was some set orthodoxy that i could follow and everything would be fine yeah um and at some point i realized well no if you make any rule or any law there's always going to be some exception that does, that it doesn't work for. There's always going to be some like life is too complex to make rules for to, to actually to, to regulate completely with just like a bunch of written down rules. Uh, and so I was very anti rules at that point. And that's what that's where I sort of came across libertarianism. Yeah. So, but but uh, again, coming into leftist spaces after having that experience and seeing the way Marxism Leninism is treated, it's like oh, you guys have holy texts, you guys have sacred books that you're you're you know, venerating and, and, and expecting everyone to adhere to. And I'm very leery of that. Oh. I, you know, I've seen where that can go and I feel like it's, it's you know, and, and so the whole idea of like part of the project of being a, a sentient or a sapient creature, a person, a human being, part of the thing that makes us special is that we have a brain that we can use and there is no shortcut to thinking. There is no way to, like, like, like when people want to make a rule and say, okay, this is the law, this is how it's going to be, this is, this is the, the written down orthodoxy that's going to be true for all time. What they want to do is they don't want to have to think and they just want to use that rule to, to make their 
their decisions easy. Mm. And ultimately, no decision is really all that easy. It's always a judgment call. And that, that very much brought me into anarchism, I think. Sort of realising that there is no way to prevent people from needing to make those judgment calls for themselves throughout their life. One aspect of anarchism um, that appeals to me as well is that the stuff that you've encountered throughout your own years actually informs, can potentially inform the anarchist politics as well. And it sharpens that idea that your own experiences can be explained in the instance of class difference. Now, I remember a previous episode where I interviewed a fellow called Dave Eden and towards the end of the episode, we were touching upon what we've kind of been bandying around here, Michael, about this anarchist versus Marxist-Leninist thing. And I recall where we were going in that episode was, uh, and still got a bit of a hot takey vibe to it, <laughs> in that I think a lot of what potentially informs Marxist-Leninist politics is a lot of romanticization there, like romanticization of state, that the state can prevail and there can be a benevolent state romanticization. So because everything's very heavily theory-driven, it might not necessarily compute or translate well in reality but if you nail down the theory, then everything's going to come good. That That is the theory within the theory, apparently. Mm. So the romanticization of the state, good bureaucracy, that belief that state can be innately good. But to me, that seems to fall into to previous traps where uh, it does take its line through a lot of religious discourse there where there's stuff that where you just need to have an amount of faith, I suppose. Mm whether or whether not that's something that's been consciously identified by your typical tanky type is um, is a different story. But I think what could ultimately be going on here is that there is that divorce from class experience. And I'm not going to say it's because there's a whole bunch of tankies that have come through a place of privilege. I, I would actually hazard to say that a lot of them have had some fucked up life experiences. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But the remedy has been to just really submit oneself to getting into the theory, getting into the doctrine, and not worry about trying to knit together all of that. Then that's a reflexive practice where what one learns, what one experiences, how does all of that make sense at the end of the day? I feel there's something missing there, and, I, and that could be a generational thing. And again, this is the, we're still, I think, at this point, on hot takey ground where a generation has come through where there isn't that ability to find out where the touchstones are to be able to marry the idea of theory practice life experience how mm. all that meshes together to come up with with a good sense of politics yeah i mean you were talking about earlier about student activists who do spend a lot of time just debating and you know, going around in circles trying to nail down the theory, as you were saying. Yes, this um, is why we were having lunch, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just in case people are thinking, oh, did I um, fast forward too far into this episode, miss something here? Yeah, it's a callback to something you weren't you, you weren't here for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like uh, one of the things that, that like that just occurred to me is that like that that's probably okay for a younger person to be doing as long as at some point it does meet the road, like, like that that theory, the rubber does meet the road and they start to actually get some feedback. 
but also I was uh, just thinking that that also reminds me of the way that we run our education system where like in, in a lot of places, like when you've got a trade, for instance, they have a, um, th- there'll be a, an apprenticeship where you're, you're learning on the job, you're actually doing physical work and you're learning theory in, for instance, a TAFE course at the same time. Mm. And that's like, that's a really holistic approach to learning, but a lot of university education involves like, well, we're going to teach you about social work. So we're going to put you in a room for two or three years before you ever meet someone that you might actually be working with in the real world and then once you've learned all this theory then you can go out into the real world and interface with actual people and like the things you learn in a classroom kind of only have a tangential relationship to the real world in so many ways like a lot of people who've done their degrees say well I only use about 10% of what I learned if that and it's it's not a holistic approach and it's, it's it's an idea that you can sit down and just read a bunch of books and debate the theory and then suddenly, once you've got it right, then you can go out to the real world and do it. And I wonder and, if and you can tell everyone else this is the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I can tell you how to do it because I have a piece of paper that says I'm an expert. I'll yeah. accept that, Michael. <laughs> oh, because you've got a piece of paper now. Yeah. yeah, yeah well. No, you've got the piece of paper. It's like, okay, well, all right, cool. <laughs> oh, I see. We're, we're, we're role playing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you know your shit, therefore, it's like whatever you, whatever you say. It's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to, well, so no, dis- okay, so disclaimer, no. <laughs> no, that was sarcasm. Okay, good. If, we, if, we, if we're thinking about accolades, I have an Australian Museum Science Prize. So there you go. Ah. Oh. <laughs> uh, which which I did not earn by doing the years of hard actual research that most of the people who earn those get. Um, I just made a video one time and won, won a competition. Oh, <laughs> but, um, so you took the fast track, Michael. Yeah, well, I didn't realise it was actually a prestigious award that I was winning. <laughs> oh, okay. It was, it, it, yeah, it, like, like I said, most of the, the, the actual scientists who won those things did real like long-term research to earn it. I just made a video one time. And then all these other scientists have just come out of the tree going, who's this Johnny come lately <laughs> that basically took my ego trip? Well, it was, it was me and a couple of, a couple of uh, like some primary school kids and some high school kids and I was in the college category. And Did you get science backlash? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, uh, how old were you? I was like 20-something, uh, young 20s. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. All right, well, maybe that's that, That's what shielded you. It was like, okay, well, this young Rudiger coming through. <laughs> um, yeah, it occurs to me that that's such a small pool of, um, of people that have actually done that, that I, I may have just doxed myself. But um, yeah, no, I was, it was just, uh, it was only three minutes, so you couldn't be too, you couldn't be too thorough. But I, I basically just said, look, it, it was basically a critique of science reporting um, okay. and how people like sensationalize science reporting when the reality is much more complex and much less. And doing that in three minutes. Yeah, it was, you know. That's really on point. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> so from here, Michael, I'm going to bring you in here some other time because I can find a couple of other there are jobs that need to be done. You yep. did a good job with the clothesline. There's more work here for you if you would like it. Cool. <laughs> um, and I will recompense you with money, a Give meal. Me some money. <laughs> and a podcasting episode. Good. How was that? Yeah. Actually, one thing I was thinking was um, it'd be so nice if there was some way to do this without the intermediate of money, but there really isn't, <laughs> like not in our society. No, um, that's the right, huh? It's like I give you cash, you come here. <laughs> you going to do this for free? It's like you have to cross the whole Sydney urban basin to, to get here, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And we don't live in a communal society where you can just live off of goodwill. Like crossing Sydney costs money. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well... I think we've um, we've committed to, to more episodes with Michael because it's been good today. Been able to have a bit of a political chat and um, my, also a, an added bonus for me is that I got my clothesline restrung. So thank you very much, Michael. Time. And we will see you again, no doubt. All right.
See ya. See ya.